brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown stand firm in the Lord in this way. My beloved, I urge Yulia and I, and I urge Sintek to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you also, my loyal companion, help these women, for they have struggled beside me in the work of the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Do not worry about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, beloved, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence and if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Keep on doing the things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. And the God of peace will be with you. The word of God for the world. Apparently, we all just need an anti-anxiety prescription. Be anxious for nothing. This is one of those phrases we've all heard and thrown around quite commonly and many times without effect. I remember this moment. Just don't worry. Just don't worry. Just don't worry. And with little avail, within moments, the same thoughts sort of come back. How many of us have drowned under our weight of fear, insecurity, demands, another failure? And then some genius comes along and says, don't worry about it. Our lives and stories are familiar with what it means to be anxious. Are any of you out there? There's two of you. <laughs> I think we all have and know that sense of being out of control. And of course, it doesn't help that we typically look to the wrong places to find some joy. We look for the low-lying fruit, the comfort food, the comfort programming, the escape in the internet. Many times, it's like a shot in the arm. We think it'll satisfy this hunger, this mundaneness that we feel, but we're still hungry. These temporary things just don't satisfy, and they certainly don't cast out that anxiety. This is where Paul comes in. And we can't take this command of be not anxious unless it is set alongside this previous chapter in 3, especially verses 7 and 8 that say this. Whatever gains I've had, these I have come to regard as loss because of Christ. In fact, Paul says, more than that, I regard everything as lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. What is he talking about? In short, he's talking about perspective, 
perspective that leads to peace. He's advocating a sort of letting go, of emptying yourself, of everything that takes away from this relationship with Christ, this surpassing knowing, anything that competes with our identity in Christ. For him, and he says it just the verse before, he says, all these things I was confident, and he gives his list of accomplishments as if it was a resume under the honor section, circumcised on the eighth day, member of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, as a, to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuted the church, as to righteousness, under the law, blameless. But he counts it all as loss. Of course, our list wouldn't quite look like that. But rare would it be the person that under the resume of accomplishments, awards, and honors brackets and says, but these are just loss. I mentioned at Free For All a few weeks ago that any advice that just says to let go is ineffectual. You can't let go of something unless you have something to hold on to. This was wisdom Michael passed along at a particularly anxious time that I was in. And of course, there were those around the table said, yes, I agree. You know, the, the power of positive thinking goes only so far. This is why, as Brian said at the table, the campaign, just say no, doesn't always work. What are we saying yes to? Well, let me try to make this as simple as possible. It's not just about letting go of things. You were actually created to hold on to something. Think about it. So many times people say, just let go, move on. We can't. We are meant, we are created to hold on to the divine, to that which is beautiful and lovely. <coughs> and what it is, sometimes at our best, we do hold on to things that we strive to find purpose. We're holding on to a dream, and this is good. But sometimes we hold on to hurts and past wounds. We hold on to things that we have, again, no control of. Just letting go of something is impossible without the displacement of holding on to something else. So how can anybody expect us to do this and not be anxious when things go wrong? We must choose. And here's where Paul beautifully says multiple times, hold on. He says it in chapter 2, 16 and 3, 16, hold on. 2.16 says, it's by your holding fast to the word of life that I can boast on the day of Christ that I didn't run in vain or labor. It's by holding fast to the word of life. Paul doesn't just say, don't worry. You know, if we take these verses in isolation, it can be really hopeless. Don't worry. So that's why he immediately follows up with what he wants you to hold on to. He says, but by in everything, prayer and petition with thanksgiving, let your requests be named to God. In other words, holding on to the word of life is holding on to prayer. 
The peace of God can therefore make space. But what do we hold on to? Well, part of holding on to the word of life, for example, is, I think one example is if you've ever had a hard time forgiving someone. Do we have more than two in that category? (laughs) Maybe someone hurt you a week ago, maybe it was 30 years ago. Maybe what they did was horrible, egregious. And in every way, you have a right to feel the pain. You've definitely felt blame, resentment, and felt captive to all the feelings that came with it. And think of the ridiculous audacity for someone to say, just let it go. Have you ever had that? You can't. You can't just let it go. But there's an alternative. There's an alternative in what it is holding on to the word of life. God's word. God's presence. Listen to this. When you struggle, you promise and hear God's promise that says, I am the judge. You hear God's word that says, forgive as I have forgiven. And even remembering God's action, as Jesus said on the cross, brother, forgive them, they know not what they do. So do we understand what it means to hold on? We can, yes, focus on God's word, God's promise, God's action. But many times we still struggle, right? And so Paul goes on to say you have to foster these habits of the heart and the mind. He said especially whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is pure, pleasing, commendable, excellent, praiseworthy, think on these things. Hold on to these. And later the peace will be with you. As Anne said at Free For All, if you're worrying... Count your blessings. But what happens is we don't hold on very well. We start losing our grip. We start slipping, and some of the old messages come back. The distortions of truth, the lies return, the negativity seeps in, and we get weak. We give in. So you don't need anybody else to tell you just hold on without telling you how to do it. And I can't think of a better example than Paul who gives us the starting line. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Sorry, but how many of you know that refrain? Okay, we're going to sing it. Because there's more than two of you. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always again, I say rejoice. Rejoice, rejoice, again I say rejoice. Rejoice, rejoice, again I say rejoice. If you've seen that refrain in community, I tell you, something shifts. It's not just about a response, it's about something that opens within us. It's a reminder. The cornerstone. Actually, in this whole passage, he says, Rejoice, let your gentleness be known, for the Lord is near. This is the cornerstone. This is why you can rejoice. 
Because if you remember the Lord is near, again, God's presence, your perspective changes. This is the secret. You may have heard the old line, don't magnify your problem, magnify your God, and let God be your source of strength. Our perspective is what will motivate us. Perspective is what always motivates us. And so we need to shift perspective. This is how we hold on. Paul believed, even as this translates, God is near, also that his sense that Jesus' return was imminent. And he says, if you consider this, that God's presence is imminent, God is with us, regardless of how you translate it, it says it changes what you worry about. Perspective is infinitely important. Think about it this way. Circumstances are a given, but it's how you interpret them that matters. Is this circumstance good or is it bad? Well, depending on how you look at it, it could be either one. If you consider that the Lord is with you incarnationally, many times you have the ability to know that there is a God who suffers with you. This is continually reminded every time I go to see Hazel. For those of you who don't know Hazel or visitors with us, Hazel is a member of our congregation but hasn't been able to worship with us for some time. And she's wheelchair-bound and struggles, and she's fighting cancer another time. But every time, every time when I have a conversation, that's not what her focus is on. She focuses on the strength of the community. She focuses on reading scripture that night. She focuses on her prayers and the love that she shares with this community whom she doesn't see physically. This is the sort of incarnational love that we have been pinned into. This is why we can rejoice. This is why we can have a different perspective. Can we see that peace that transcends all understanding? It's not that God takes away bad situations, but that God gives us the ability to change our perception. This is why Paul ends this whole portion saying, keep practicing what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. It really is about practice. And I have said this in a recent newsletter that in the coming months and year, we'll be focusing on different practices of the Christian faith. None of us can succeed at anything without practice. How do you practice? Like anything, you make the time. You find community. Meaning, if you're going to play baseball well, you're going to have to find a team. It would look a little silly to be playing by yourself. As followers of this Christ, we need a team. We need a church community. And we need more than just Sunday morning. We need a place where we can be ourselves, where we can share those anxieties, those vulnerabilities and insecurities, fear that creeps in. We need a small group where we can feel safe to do that because we can't practice this alone. It is almost nearly impossible to practice Christianity by yourself. And Paul keeps saying that. Practice holding on. And eventually peace 
will dwell there. Furthermore, practices change perception. Practices openness to perceive the world differently. This is what they're about. And God's presence is our focal point. This, if we practice, allows us to let go of worldly cares, anxieties, because we're then made aware, as this quote says, of God's presence and joy that is always with us. And what are these kind of practices? Many of us in communities of faith, just shoot out the ones that you know about. What? Prayer. All right. I was hoping someone might say prayer. <laughs> say a little prayer for me. Okay. Fellowship. Fellowship. Yes. Offering hospitality. Well, this is good. We have some learning to do, right? <laughs> so there's this great group of folks that talk about what they call practicing our faith. And there's wonder, a whole list of 12 that I find really helpful. One begins honoring the body. You've probably heard of keeping Sabbath, sharing testimony, singing our life, discerning in community, forgiveness, healing, dying well. And one of my favorites, saying yes and saying no. These are community practices that we'll continue to grow and learn. Otherwise, we stagnate as followers. It's sort of silly that we just sort of assume we, we say yes, ascend to Christ, and then we're on our own path. We need the community, and Paul keeps emphasizing this. And this is why he keeps emphasizing joy. I can't say it enough. Rejoice the Lord always again, I say rejoice. Let me just say, for those of you who haven't been following our Philippians study, Paul says this over 12 times. He opens the letter. He says, I'm constantly praying with joy. He goes on to say, you are my joy in faith. He says, they are his joy. And he says, later, Philippians, make my joy complete. And then he says at the beginning of this chapter, calling the congregation at Philippi my joy and my crown. And here is someone who is writing from a prison cell and keeps talking about joy. Let that roll around in your head for a bit. Paul wrote about joy in prison? What prisons are we in? Are we able to talk about, write about, think about joy? Or is joy based on our circumstance, emotion, or history? Or is it based on God's presence, God's promise, God's action? He knows, Paul, that joy is the outcome of living a life focused on and in Christ. So we are called to rejoice. And just in case we're a little challenged, if being silly together isn't enough, he says, then pray with thanksgiving. Try having a grateful attitude. Hold on 
this grateful way of living. And surely if you are focused on being grateful, those anxieties begin to subside. You've, you've pushed that mental space out. And peace moves in. But it doesn't happen instantaneously. And it isn't easy. Again, why we must do it in community. I like what one commentator said, Nathan Eady said, joy itself is not the goal. As if it were a drug. It is an outcome and a sign of the presence of the risen Christ. And here's the part I want you to hear. Joy is a discipline of perception. Not an emotion dependent on circumstance. Joy is a discipline of perception, not an emotion dependent on circumstance, in which he follows with, the events in which Christians should read God's action are not obvious and are often counterintuitive. A prison cell, he argues as well, is an unlikely outpost for God's mission. And Christ being preached from corrupt motives is hardly desirable. Desirable, But Paul rejoices in these. Remember that? Chapter 1. Paul knows that if you lose everything, you see what really matters. And even then you can have joy. Because you have seen the source of life and healing and identity that are based on this God and not circumstance, not thoughts, not emotion, not history. Our perspective begins to get a view. You finally see it can have something at which the hymnist calls mystic sweet communion. Yes, letting go only though while holding on. Holding on to the Christ the Christ that gives joy. And this joy isn't just, as Glenda said, solar Christians or solar Christianity where everything is sunshiny all the time. But even lunar Christians are invited. In fact, this is a joy that we can have because we know great pain and loss, because we know grief and suffering. Because we know the Christ that steadies us and holds us. We are Christ's, finally, I say. Christ is ours. Christ is our life, or as Paul said in a different letter to the Romans, if God is for us, and just when you think your, your grasp is slipping and you're not holding on very well, the last thing you need is someone to say, well, just hold on tighter. Rather, hear Paul say, not that I've already obtained it. I haven't become perfect. But I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which I am being laid hold of by Christ Jesus. So when your hold isn't strong, remember, I love this, it's in the passive tense because you're not the author. God is. 
that God is laying hold of you. So let go while holding on, even as you're being held by this Christ.